Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John. We began looking at the Gospel of John, I think, in September of 2021, uh, and we looked at the first five chapters at that point before we uh, went back into Genesis. So this morning we come to John chapter 6, and I'll be reading John 6 verses 1 through 27. Before I read that, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we come, uh, we come to you, our Father, we come to your Son, our Lord Jesus, we come by your Spirit who enables us, who draws us to you. And Father, we pray that as we come to you right now, that you would come and be with us, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would see Jesus more clearly. We know that uh, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing and uh, we can't even uh, see the kingdom apart from your spirit's work within us. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would open our eyes to see your kingdom and your glory, uh, most of all to see your son with greater clarity and to believe in him unto the saving of our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 27. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I. Do not be afraid.'" And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. 
On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Confirmation bias is the tendency to interpret life, the facts, your circumstances, in a way that confirms your already held beliefs. Life is what you expect it to be, yes? In this way, it never surprises you. It simply confirms what you already believe. And there are all kinds of problems with confirmation bias, not the least of which is it stunts growth and leaves you trapped in whatever lies you believe. If you simply interpret everything in light of what you already, quote, know to be true, how can anything ever challenge you? This is the trap of conspiracy theories, right? Whatever evidence you have to the contrary only somehow ends up proving the conspiracy even more. Now, I'm not suggesting the opposite, that everyone should live every moment with no firmly held beliefs. That would be the opposite extreme, I guess. Uh, we, we literally could not live like that. But we should be curious, open to surprise, open to things not being what we expect. Now, confirmation bias is just one type of, of observation bias. Uh, maybe you've heard the one about the man who lost his house keys and went looking for them under the street lamp. He gets help looking for his keys under the street lamp, and after a few minutes, he's asked, are you sure you lost your keys here? And the man replies, no, I lost them in the park. Then why are we looking for them here, his helper asks. Because, he responds, this is where the light is. This is another kind of observation bias, when you only look for something where it is easy to look, where you expect to find it. Uh, this kind of bias happens all the time when you have kids in your home. Uh, you've heard it before, right? A, a little kid comes out and says, I can't find my shoes. And uh, you respond as the parent, well, have you looked? And of course the answer is yes, but after subsequent interrogation, you realize by looked, the child means they glanced around the room, didn't see the shoes, and just assumed that someone had stolen them out of their room or they were eaten by a monster. The problem is what we believe, where we are looking, even what we are looking for, can all cause us to find the wrong things and completely overlook what is most important. In our passage this morning, Jesus' contemporaries are looking in the wrong place for the wrong things because of wrong beliefs, all of which cause them to completely miss who Jesus is. When we look in the wrong place for the wrong things, we miss who Jesus is. 
Now, thankfully, God is relentless, and the Gospel of John is relentless, and John keeps setting Jesus before us so that we might see and believe and find life. Now, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John, so let me uh, give you a quick refresher in John's Gospel up to this point. Uh, First, I, I should even explain the word gospel because it can refer to different things. Uh, The word gospel means good news. And when we talk about the gospel, we mean the good news of what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection, in dying for our sin and conquering death by rising from the dead. But when we talk about a gospel or the gospels, there are four of them in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we are talking about historical narratives that tell the story of Jesus. And so John's gospel is a historical narrative telling the story of Jesus. You can think of it kind of like a biography of Jesus, but it's a biography with a purpose. And John tells us his purpose in the end of the gospel. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, he wrote what he wrote so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we said uh, in our introduction to John back in September of 2021, uh, I won't repeat everything that I said there, but uh, John is really answering three questions throughout his gospel. He's answering the question, who is Jesus? How do we know? And why does it matter? And John's answers, if we were to summarize the, the whole gospel in just a few sentences, are that Jesus is the son of God in the flesh, the Messiah, who came to be the savior of the world. And we can know that really the same way we can know any historical facts because of the eyewitness testimony of those who saw and heard and touched the crucified and risen Jesus, but also because of the testimony of the Father and the Spirit to the Son that John records throughout his gospel. Now this matters, who Jesus is matters, because Jesus offers life to those who believe in him, a life of joy and peace and hope in the present and resurrection life on the last day. Now this morning we will see John continuing to show us Jesus, to bear witness to what he saw and heard so that we too might see and hear Jesus through the scriptures that we might know him and believe in him. Now John chapter six is a really rich chapter which should be taken as a whole. It, it, it really hangs together as one story, but we'd be here for the next several hours if we took it as a whole. So we're going to take it a little bit at a time over the next three weeks. This week, we're looking at what gets in the way of seeing and hearing Jesus, really seeing and hearing Jesus for who he is and not who we expect him to be. And so our three points for this morning are who Jesus is, why we miss it, and how to see. Who Jesus is, why we miss it, and how to see. When we look in the wrong place for the wrong things, we miss who Jesus is. And this morning, I just want you to be curious, uh, curious enough to hear and see for the first time who Jesus is. So our first point, who Jesus is. In our story this morning, we come to to two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. Uh, Both of them are found in other gospels, other tellings of Jesus' story. John 6, of course, comes on the heels of John 5. Uh, In John 5, Jesus got into it a bit with some of his contemporaries. In John 5, 16 to 18, we read this. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus 
because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, this is likely why Jesus leaves in verse 1, and he heads to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? He's getting away from certain militant opponents in order to spend some quiet time with his disciples. You see that in verse 3. Of course, as so often often happened with Jesus, he couldn't really get away. A large crowd follows him, according to verse 2, and Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing the crowd, has compassion on them, as he always did. And after going back and forth with his disciples, he performs the miracle of multiplying five barley loaves, the the bread of the poor, and two fish to feed 5,000 men, which means perhaps up to 10,000 people. And notice some details of the story uh, that, that point us to who Jesus is. First, if you, if you back up just two verses to John 5, 46, we hear Jesus say this, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And then Jesus begins to do things to demonstrate just that point. Uh, Jesus goes up on a mountain. Not an uncommon thing, but perhaps reminiscent of Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses. John tells us it was the time of the Passover. Uh, The Passover was the celebration of God bringing Israel out of Egypt. It was a reminder of the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed for the firstborn of Israel. And of course, it would bring to mind Moses, who led the people out of Egypt at God's command. And John, by bringing it up, wants us to think about this whole chapter with the Passover in mind. There's no other reason to mention it except to make us think about it as we read what comes next. When Jesus sees the crowds coming to him, he asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Uh, Which is actually an echo of a question that Moses asked in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 11. He says, where am I to get meat to give all this people? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, brings a boy to Jesus with five barley loaves and two fish. But Andrew says, what are they for so many? These details and the miracle itself actually is an echo of a miracle of Elisha, who took 20 barley loaves, probably the size of dinner rolls, and gave them to his servant, which in the Greek Old Testament is the same word for boy here, and tells the boy to serve those 20 loaves to 100 prophets. And the boy asks, how can I set this before 100 men? How can I divvy up 20 dinner rolls among 100 people? And Elisha responds in 2 Kings chapter 4, he says, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So Jesus, once he gets the the loaves and fish, he has people sit down on the grass like the good shepherd in Psalm 23. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He takes the loaves, he gives thanks, and begins to pass it out as much as they wanted, verse 11. Uh, By the way, this is the point where the miracle of the story happens. It's interesting that John doesn't actually tell us uh, the miracle itself. It just kind of happens there in the midst of the story that the bread and the fish are multiplied. And then verse 12 says, when they had eaten their fill... Uh, Jesus tells his disciples to gather up the fragments and they end up with 12 baskets full. 
Now, now what are we being told about Jesus in this story? What is Jesus telling us about himself? What is John trying to tell us about Jesus? Well, Jesus, like Moses, provides bread in the wilderness for his people. Like Elisha, he multiplies the barley loaves, not 20 for 100 men, but five for 1,000 men. And as in the Elisha story, there is even some left over. This is also reminiscent of the Old Testament book of Ruth. Uh, You may remember the widow Ruth and Naomi returned to Israel at the barley harvest. And Boaz, the ancestor of King David and therefore of King Jesus, invites the poor widow Ruth to a meal and we are told she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over, the same language that is used here. The point is, of all of this, of course, is the abundance of what Jesus provides. Uh, Here we have a great picture of Jesus' kingdom and the great King Jesus providing for the poor and needy, not just a, a bite to eat, but as much as they wanted so that they ate their fill. And he provides in such abundance that there are 12 baskets full left over. The people get this. They, they, they make some of these connections, at least, because after they see what happens, they shout out in verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then they try to make Jesus king by force. Uh, the, the prophet is the prophet Moses said was coming, one like him who would speak God's word, a prophet from among your brothers, Moses promised. And he said, uh, it is to him you shall listen. Now, this word indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come. In John, it's, it's a kind of theme word. It means truly, uh, which in John means not just true versus false, but the real and the abiding and the eternal versus that which is passing away. And so Jesus is truly the prophet, the end times, final prophet to come. And so who is Jesus? As we look in this story, he is the prophet, like Moses, like Elijah, but better He is the one who is bringing the feast for God's people. Uh, Now, that's not all, of course. After the people try to make Jesus king by force, Jesus uh, escapes, it seems, further up the mountain. That evening, the disciples start to cross back over the sea, but a storm comes. Uh, Apparently, storms come quickly on the Sea of Galilee, and they can be violent even for seasoned, uh, seasoned fishermen. When Jesus' disciples are three or four miles out to sea, which means they're probably in the middle of the sea, all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking on the water. He comes near the boat, and the disciples are are scared stiff. They don't don't know what to make of this. Jesus responds to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, it is I doesn't really communicate it, because in the Greek, Jesus speaks just two words, which woodenly would be translated, I am. Here they are on the sea, in the storm. Jesus comes walking on the water and says, I am, do not be afraid. In the Old Testament, you may know the name that God gives himself is Yahweh, which again, literally translated is I am. So when Jesus says, I am, I am, he is taking the divine name onto himself. Now, given that he's walking on the water, this is not a surprise. Uh, the book of Job says that God alone tramples on the waves of the sea. And Psalm 77 says, uh, when talking about how God led the people like a flock by the hand of Moses, it says, God's way was through the sea, his path through the great waters. And so who is Jesus? He's a prophet? Yes, but more than a prophet. 
He is the I am. He is the God who tramples the sea, who marches through the storm, who subdues the waters, who brings his people safely through. He is the God who says hundreds of times in the Old Testament, do not fear for I am with you. And Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. And then he presents himself as the prophet king, the one like Moses, but better than Moses, the one like Elisha, but better than Elisha, the one like Boaz, but better than Boaz, who comes to provide, who brings a fullness that Moses and Elijah can only dream of, to spread a table in the wilderness. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He is the coming king. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is nothing less than Yahweh. I am who walks on the sea and conquers the storm. And this is just the beginning of the chapter. I wonder if this is how you see Jesus. Do you sense his greatness? Do you see that he is not just like Moses or Elijah or Boaz, the prophets and kings of old, but he is something more, something greater. He is the Lord who shepherds his people, who makes them lie down in green pastures, Yahweh who conquers the sea. Do you see it? If not, maybe you're looking in the wrong, uh, for the wrong things and in the wrong place, which brings us to our next point. So first, who Jesus is. Second, why we miss it. The people don't get it. Right? They are looking for this worldly solutions to bring this worldly satisfaction. They miss the Son of God standing right in front of them. It begins the moment they show up. Uh, Verse two, a large crowd was following Jesus. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They were chasing miracles. John's theology of miracles is nuanced. On the one hand, he is presenting certain signs which demonstrate who Jesus is. But on the other hand, Jesus rebukes the people for seeking signs. Back in John 4, 48, Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Let's watch and see in this chapter if we can figure out what John and Jesus both mean by these signs. When Jesus sees the crowd coming to him, he he leans over to Philip and says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It seems like an honest enough question. They're in the wilderness after all, but John tells us it's a test. Jesus knows what he's about to do. Philip takes the bait, and he says in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. He's saying that seven months' salary worth of bread would not be enough for each person to get a bite, to get a nibble. Philip looks to human solutions and says, we don't have the resources, Jesus, to do what you're asking us to do. You must be crazy. How could we possibly buy bread for all these people? Enter Andrew and the boy with his five loaves and two fish, barley loaves, the the food of the poor. Andrew brings the boy, but Andrew too says, what are they for so many? What, What we have is not sufficient, he's saying. We don't have what it takes, Jesus, to do what you're asking us to do. And you see what both Philip and Andrew are doing. Rather than looking to Jesus, they are looking at the resources of the present age. Here's what we have. And when we look to our resources, we inevitably find we don't have what it takes. But they miss Jesus standing right there in front of them. Now, the people see Jesus, at least after the miracle. At that point, they say he's the prophet, and they try to make him king. Now, why king? Well, kings were responsible for their people. If they had a king who could do what Jesus just did, well, they'd never be hungry again. Now, Jesus is the king, 
but they don't understand that. They don't, they don't understand who Jesus is. They want to make him a political ruler. Again, a this-worldly solution to their this-worldly problems. The next day after Jesus crossed the sea on foot, the crowds come looking for him. And when they finally find Jesus, they wonder how in the world Jesus got across the sea. They're confused because they still don't see Jesus for who he is. But Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What do the people want? They want full bellies. They they want satisfaction in the present. And to be fair, they're not looking for gourmet meals, right? Jesus gave them the poor man's bread, but they're back for more. Why does Jesus rebuke them? We need to be careful here because it's not wrong to seek your daily bread. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray for it. That's not the problem. Well, what's the problem then? John 6, 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. You see, here's the problem. The people are focused on worldly solutions and worldly power, money and resources and political rule to get worldly satisfaction, to eat their fill. And that's where it ends. Again, it's not, it's not wrong to use the powers of this age for good. You can work and make money and buy food. There's nothing wrong with that. So what's the problem here? When Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, what does he mean? He means don't make this the goal of your life. He, he means, is this all you're living for? Are you working for the the weekend, living for the paycheck? Is your heart set on the things of this life for money or sex or possessions or the newest Disney Plus series? Those things won't last. Do not work for the food that perishes. It's not that we shouldn't seek good things. To the contrary, the problem is we don't seek enough. C.S. Lewis put it like this in an off-quoted part of his address, The Weight of Glory. He said, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Do you see why we miss Jesus? Because we are focused on and satisfied with worldly solutions, power, and satisfaction what God wants to give us something more and better in Jesus. And so Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. What are you living for? What are you satisfied with? Where have you set your heart? What do you dream about? What are you longing for? What are you planning for or saving for or preparing for? If you are focused on the glories of this present age, and there are glories, glorious things in God's world, but if you are focused on the glories of the present age, you will miss the glories of Christ and his kingdom and the age to come. Whatever you think is best in this life, there are better things 
to be found in Jesus. Now, some of those better things we have seen in our study of the earlier chapters of John, and some we will see as we go on. But notice what Jesus says here. He talks about the food that endures to eternal life. Now, there are different kinds of food right, that, 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 that give different kinds of life. There's the food of this age, the bread that perishes, that gives a life that perishes. Every day you eat food, you expend energy that that food supplies, and, and then you need to eat more food. And you eat food that perishes in a body that is perishing. But Jesus says there is a food that endures to eternal life. Now, eternal life in the Gospel of John does, does mean life that goes on forever, but it, it actually means more than that. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I came that, that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus wants to give abundant life, fullness of life to his people. And that fullness of life is not more stuff. It's not more of the life that you already have. It's a whole new dimension to all of life because it is restored communion with the God of the universe, reconciliation to the one who made all of life, a relationship with the one who is the giver of all good gifts. Jesus wants to reunite us with the one about whom the Old Testament songwriter says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Are you too easily satisfied in life? Are you living for the food that perishes? If so, you may miss the one who comes to bring life in its fullness. So that's who Jesus is and why we miss it. Finally, how to see. John is teaching us how to see in his gospel. And he's really pointing us to two things here, to the signs and to the scriptures. Uh, on the one hand, Jesus rebukes the crowds for seeking signs, John 4, 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so when we read in verse two that the crowds followed him because they saw the signs, we, we are suspect, rightly suspect. But now in verse 26, when Jesus says, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill, Jesus seems to be rebuking them for not seeking him because of the signs. And so what's going on? Well, John and Jesus do want us to look at the signs. Uh, they, they, that's why John is including these miracle stories in the gospel. You know, every gospel writer is selective. They, they put in some stories and not others. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs, which he did not record. And in uh, chapter 21, verse 25, he says, if everything Jesus did was written down, there would not be enough shelf space in the world to contain the books. But John includes these signs on purpose. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing find life in his name. And so he records particular signs, turning the water into wine, the healing of the politician's son, the healing of the lame man at the pool, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water. And John wants us to see the signs, but he doesn't want us to seek the signs or to stop at the signs. He wants us to see through the signs to Jesus. See, we must see Jesus through these signs. The crowds come to Jesus because they want more food. They, they see the sign, but they can't see any further. They are satisfied with bread. John wants us to see through the signs to Jesus. Right? What do these signs say about him? Now, most of us would be very happy with a miracle. We pray for miracles. We hope for miracles. And God is free to do miracles anytime he pleases. But miracles were never the point. 
Uh, the, the point was always, who is Jesus? If you can't see through the miracle to Jesus, the miracle will do you no good. In fact, it, it may do you spiritual harm. Sometimes God giving us what we want is a judgment, or in the case of his children, a discipline. He gives us over to the unsatisfying stuff of this life until we hit bottom and realize it is unsatisfying. Or he gives us over to the food that perishes until we realize that it leaves us empty and we look for something more. We must learn to see through the miracle, through the blessings, through the gifts, through every good thing in this life to the giver of every good thing, God himself. And to the one who has secured every good thing for us, Jesus, the one who died and rose on our behalf. Now, how do we do that? Uh, the answer is we look at those things, the signs and all the rest, through the scriptures. Uh, we need to learn to see through the signs and see through the scriptures. For John, the Old Testament scriptures are the lens through which he looks at Jesus. Jesus is the one Moses spoke of. Jesus is the one greater than Elisha. Jesus is the I am who walks on the water and subdues the storms. The Old Testament provides the interpretive lens through which John saw Jesus. And of course, we can expand that now that we have the New Testament as well to say that the, the Bible as a whole provides the interpretive lens through which we must see Jesus and then all things in light of Jesus. And so who is Jesus? He is the prophet king who comes to bring a feast for those who need it most. The one Moses spoke of, the one greater than Elisha and Boaz and David and all the rest. He is the I am, Yahweh, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the one who comes to bring life and give life to the full. How does he do that? Well, first, he becomes like us, to sympathize with us and identify with us. And then identifying with sinners, he goes to the cross and dies for sinners. And having paid sin's debt, he rises from the dead on the third day, the sin bearer who is righteous in the sight of his father. Both demonstrate that sin and death are defeated, but also that Jesus himself has entered into a whole new kind of existence in his body, resurrection life with his father. And now Jesus offers that, that reconciled resurrection life to all who believe. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Why do we miss this? Well, because we are fooling around with drink and sex and ambition because we are working for food that perishes, because we are too easily satisfied or at least numbed with the pleasures of this age. What can we do to see Jesus in all of his glory? Look through the signs and through the scriptures. Put on the spectacles of scripture to allow you to understand all things and you will come to see Jesus in all his glory. And through faith in him, you will come to know the pleasures at the Father's right hand forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus in all of his glory. We pray that you would help us to see him through the signs and through the scriptures, to see Jesus as uh, the king, as the prophet, as the I am, as God in the flesh, who has come to defeat sin on our behalf, to rise from the dead in the resurrection, and to give us that same resurrection life through faith in him. Work this in us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.